show that uh, next slide. Anybody familiar with this place? Throw that up there. Anybody remember Burger Chef? Yeah, some of you, the, the, probably you got to be over 40 years old to remember Burger Chef. I grew up on Burger Chef, and, uh, you know, I got to say, I miss it. Uh, it was what we always had. That's, we didn't have uh, the Golden Arches in Connersville when I was growing up. They didn't get that until I was almost in high school. Uh, but we had a Burger Chef that was actually owned uh, by our neighbor who went to our little Nazarene church. Jim Arthur owned the Burger Chef and actually owned a couple. And I, and I got to tell you, I, I had a favorite meal there. They're fish sandwich and fries and a small Coke. Every time, I, I mean, they didn't have Happy Meals when I was growing up. I get a fish sandwich and fries. And, and what, I really, what I really loved was not the fish sandwich, but the tartar sauce. And, and, and I'll just admit it, uh, I, feel like, I feel like I'm coming clean. I love tartar sauce. You know, I, I like to dip my fries in it. When I was a kid, I used to make tartar sauce sandwiches. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound yummy? And before you judge me too much, all of you have weird things like that yourself. Things that you probably wouldn't admit since you don't stand in front of people and preach, but you understand the, the, the weird things that we associate with the word love. You know, I said I loved tartar sauce. And you guys completely understood what I meant when I said, I love tartar sauce. Because there's things in your life that you would say, I love. I love Ohio State football, right? OH. You love it. You know, you, you, you love a car, you, you, you love apple pie. You love grilled cheese sandwiches. And, and this is probably true. We all love Florida in the winter, right? You know, we, we use that L word, that word love, that, that I wonder if in 300 years people will look back at our culture and the words we use, the things we use with the word love, if they'll think that is a weird group of people, the things that they loved, you know, I, and we use it like that. You know, I, I, I love Terry. I love my wife. And I love Chipotle. <laughs> uh, I love my kids, my boys and my daughter-in-laws. And I love basketball. <laughs> you understand. My, my love for Chipotle or basketball or tartar sauce or Florida in the winter <laughs> is not the same as my love for Terry and my love for my boys. And, and so this series, we're going to talk about love and talk about the L word and, and really talk about what is real love. And we talk about Christian love and we sing about love. And when we do these things, that, that all that we do as a church is gathered around this word love. What do we mean when we say love. Now, now the Greeks had many words that could be translated love. And, and, and I really do believe that, that at some point people will look back our culture and, and the way that we use this word and will be looked at as kind of strange that we use this word for love for many different 
in so many different ways. But to the Greeks, they had you know, at least four main words that would be translated love. You had eros and storge and philio. And, and, and all these words, they would use them in combination. And you know, they, it, would, it represent eros typically is romantic or physical or sexual love. And, and, and then you'd have family love or, or brotherly love. Philadelphia, what's, this, what's the city of Philadelphia? City of brotherly love. So that that's, means brotherly love. And, and so the, the Greeks would have all these different words that they would use for love. And, and the Bible uses these words. And, and, and it's not always used in a negative connotation. It's not like it's wrong. But, it, but it's an understanding that we love in different ways. The primary word, though, is this word agape. And this is this unconditional, God-like love. Agape love is ultimately what God calls us to. God is calling us to love like He loves. And so when we sing about that, when we talk about that in the church, God is calling us to this agape-like, God-like, unconditional love. Now, now, when I say that, sometimes I think people get the wrong idea that, that when you talk about these other forms of love, this romantic love, this family love, this friendship love, that, that somehow that's bad. I don't believe it's bad. I believe that these all demonstrate aspects of this agape love. And I believe God calls us and allows us and as humans wants us to experience all these types of love that, that, that we should have friendship love, that romantic love is not bad, that, that family love is not bad. These are good things. And experiencing these types of loves, I believe, builds into us so that we can fully demonstrate agape love. I would say if you're so siloed off that you can't experience and receive any type of love, it's going to be very difficult to give love. And so as humans, all these types of loves are important, but God calls us to love like God loves. That, that ultimately in our human expression, there should be an expression of this love like God loves. Now, through this series... And, and for the foreseeable future, we'll be using the same passages that the kids are using in the children's department. I, I'm assuming Mara's teaching a different lesson. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the exact same message, but we're using the same passages with, with the ideal that when you get in the car with your kids, if you have kids in their children's department, that the, the passage they talked about, we talked about. And so when Amy read from 1 Corinthians 13, that is part of their series. And so you can talk about that passage. But, but, but I, would, I would think on the way home today, you could ask this question. How is God's love different? And you all be on the kind of same page. So they'll be in John 3, 1 through 21. We'll be in John 3, 1, 3, 1 through 21. And it's the story of Nicodemus and and, and he's visiting Jesus. Um, John's gospel is a little bit interesting. Uh, John's gospel is not necessarily 
chronological. That, that, that's not the most important thing to John. John is trying to tell us who Jesus is. And, and so when he's telling these stories, he's not necessarily following a, a chronological line like we would tell a story, but he's emphasizing certain things. And so the placement of this story tells us that John believes this is important, that we hear this story about Jesus and Nicodemus early in his book. So I believe John wants us to understand the mission of Jesus. That before he tells anything else about Jesus, before he tells any of these other stories, he wants us as his followers to understand what Jesus was trying to accomplish, his mission. So we're going to walk through this passage together, and we'll read a little bit, then we'll stop and talk about it, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, let's stop right there. This gives us clues that this is most likely a later conversation. Because before John 3, the, the only miracle that's recorded is the turning of the wine, the water into wine in Cana. So, so Jesus has not performed a lot of miracles. He's not performed a lot of signs. And so this gives us a clue that, that probably this is after many of Jesus' miracles and many of his Jesus' miracles close to Jerusalem, including the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He, he talks about signs that Jesus is performing. He's talking about teaching. All of this happens later in the ministry of Jesus than John 3. Now, now the placement of it's important too. This is in Jerusalem. For, for the vast majority of Jesus' ministry, Jesus didn't minister in Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem. He'd go to feast, but Primarily, he spent his time in Galilee. And so we, we find Jesus at a place that he would be near the end of his ministry and after many of his miracles. Personally, I believe this conversation with Nicodemus is the last week of Jesus' life. And we have Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And, and, and there's many ways you can perceive this, and I've heard this taught a number of ways. Maybe he came to Jesus at night because he was concerned about the Jewish leaders. Because you can imagine he's one of the leadership team and they're talking about crucifying this guy and he's beginning to feel this urge to follow Jesus. And so Nicodemus is there at night. And there's something beautiful about this image of it being at night. Not only is he coming in secret maybe, but this is when Jesus had time to have a deep, intimate conversation with Nicodemus. You know, maybe, maybe Nicodemus is doing this because he's afraid of what his friends may say, but Jesus uses this as an opportunity to have a deep, personal conversation with Nicodemus. And it shows us the openness of Jesus. <laughs> Now, it's easy to see, and, and, and I've talked about, Jesus had this openness to people that were on the margins, that, that Jesus practiced table fellowship with people that no one else would. 
Nicodemus would have been invited to any table in Jerusalem. He was a leader. He was esteemed. And Jesus is open to anyone. He'll spend time with them. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So John's telling us, very early in his gospel, this is about the kingdom of God. And in this passage, it's about seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus often will say, the kingdom of God is near. The, the rule and the reign of God can be seen if we look. I think we have a looking problem in our generation. <laughs> that we tend to look and focus on the wrong things. And it's easy in our culture because you know bad news sells more than good news, right? They're going to sell more commercial ads with news um, accounts on the impeachment proceedings than on cute puppies, right? We understand that. And so bad news sells, and we allow that to suck us in so that all that we see is what's negative and ugly. And I believe Jesus invites his people to see the kingdom, to, to have fresh baby eyes, to look for something better. And I think that call, calls us to look with better eyes. I think it calls us to, to look with a spirit of hope, not cynicism or bitterness. But the center of this passage is about God's love. And we move through this passage and we talk about God's kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom not based on control and power, but it's going to be a kingdom based on love. And so our response is not to cower down and not to be beaten to submission, but our, our role is to simply submit and receive the love of God that is freely given. God's kingdom is defined by God's love. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother, mother's womb and be born, can he? You know, th this is an interesting passage because on its, on, its out, on its outer view, just looking at it at first blush, that seems reasonable, right? You know, Nic Nicodemus is saying, you know, how, how can I be born again? Anybody in here ever been physically born twice? I'm just curious. You know, it's an impossibility, right? But the problem is that this language of being born again is a language that's almost in almost every religious culture. And it was a language of the Jewish culture. That, that for someone to convert to Judaism, for a proselyte to come to faith, for someone to truly become a Jewish person, they would be born again. And so Jesus is not using weird language. He's using language that Nicodemus would have heard when someone came to faith as a Jewish person. And the problem is that Nicodemus cannot hear this language about himself, but only others. Isn't that typical? Isn't that how I am and you are? That oftentimes we can accept 
that other people need to change, <laughs> but it's real hard sometimes to see that we need to change. What, what was, who, who said, I, we, we've looked into the mirror and we've seen the enemy and the enemy is ourselves, right? <laughs> that, that it, it's easy to see the changes other people need to make, but it's very difficult to see the changes that you need to make. You know, when, with, with our spouses, with our kids, we can very easily see how they need to grow up or they need to change or they need to do this. But, but oftentimes we struggle with what we need to do in that relationship. And I think Nicodemus is demonstrating this. Jesus is saying, listen, Nicodemus, you're the one. You need to be reborn. You need to see yourself for who you are. You know that this would be a good time just to do a quick prayer. That, that God would help each of us see ourselves truly and fully for who we are. Can we just close our eyes, bow our heads? Lord, help us now to be honest with ourselves. Help us not to um, be people who are blind to the changes that need to be made in our own hearts. Amen. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not be amazed. I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it, hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. <laughs> Beautiful. Can we just stop and, and reflect that, that, that God is moving in ways that we do not understand? We sense it, but we can't control it. And this kingdom of love is, is, is not something we learn to practice, but it's something that the Spirit moves within us, that, that we are dependent as God's people on God's Spirit. Is that true? We're dependent on God's Spirit to move through us. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Last night, Spencer and I went to see Hilliard Bradley play Trotwood Madison in, in high school basketball. Hilliard Bradley holds teams to 38 points a game. And they're ranked in the top five, I believe, in Division I in Ohio. Trotwood Madison is an inner city school from, from Dayton, Ohio, and, and they average 98 points a game. They scored 153 points in a game last week. <laughs> And so it was, a, it was a game of styles. It was an exciting, exciting game. And, and Spencer and I were sitting there because, you know, I need to see more high school basketball. I don't see enough. And so we're sitting there, and, the, and the, all the, the little middle schoolers or whatever they were were sitting behind us, and they were chanting stuff through the game. And I couldn't understand anything they were saying. 
You know, they would say something, and I'd turn to Spencer, and he would say, they're saying, you need glasses. Okay, thanks, Spencer. And then they would chant something else, and I'd say, what do they say? That's a flop. And and so constantly through the game, the kids would chant stuff, and I would try to, uh, anybody else hear me here? Anybody feel my pain? And Spencer would look at me like, "Uh, why am I sitting with this old guy? And tell me what they say. Old ears don't hear. Right? Old ears don't hear. But I don't want to have old spiritual ears. That, that, that to live in the kingdom, we need fresh ears and fresh baby eyes. Uh, Jesus says you're to be fresh and new wineskins. I don't believe that's something that we stop being, but I believe God calls us to continually be flexible and growing and learning. I had somebody I respected one time that that told me, I haven't learned anything new or I've not changed any of my thinking in the last 25 years. And I got to tell you, I thought that is the saddest statement I've ever heard in my life. The the, the truth is, God never changes, right? We believe that. God is eternal, and He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but we change. And in our changing, our understanding, our, our perspective, our situation changes, and hopefully we're growing in our faith. And think about the time that I've been your pastor, In the time that I've been your pastor, I've had a son that's gotten married and moved to Portland then moved back. I've had a son that's graduated from high school, graduated from college, and got married and is now living in Nashville and is getting ready to buy a house in Nashville. Doggone it. And our our baby, who is just, uh, I should have had that picture of him and Leanne when we came here by the, by the monarch tiger, Dave, that has shown him. Our, our 12-year-old that came here, his 12-year-old, is now a young man and will be 18 in about a month and a half and is getting ready to graduate from high school and, and hopefully go to Mount Vernon. There's been a lot of change in my life. And can I tell you, I'm a different person now than I was when I came to be your pastor about six years ago. And in those differences, there's growth. And I've told people oftentimes, when I am no longer teachable, when I am no longer able to learn, then I am no longer qualified to be a pastor. When we stop learning, when we stop being stretched, when we start saying there's nothing new to learn, when we're no longer willing to change, then we're in trouble. Is all change good? No! You know, th- this isn't a message of, hey, let's just change for the sake of change. This is a recognition that this church changes, we change, our community changes, and if we become so inflexible that we can't hear and we can't change, then we no longer become suitable for the kingdom, usable for the kingdom. Let's go on. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will, believes will in him have eternal life. 
And once again, we have a clue that this is later in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is talking about the crucifixion, and this becomes a focus of Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem. It suggests that this is when Jesus is ready to be poured out on a cross. And then our main passage. You could probably say this with me. Read this with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One of the first verses we learn as a kid. And your kids are going through this verse next door this morning. Jesus shows us the love of God. That, that in this passage, the, the, the direction is clear. God loves. Jesus is obedient. And in Jesus' obedience, we are able to see and focus what the love of God is. And so, in Jesus, it's obedience that demonstrates God's love. It's not this emotional thing that we go through. It's not, it's not something that, that we necessarily feel, but it's something we do in response to the Father. It's not always about a feeling. It's about being called. But here's the rub. And, and say yes if this is true. Jesus was fully God. Him and the Father were one. We're, we're Trinitarian. <laughs> uh, say that word. It's a fun word. Trinitarian, right? Say it, say it with me. Trinitarian. Okay? We're Trinitarian. When you go home from church today and you see a waitress or a neighbor say, hey, by the way, I'm Trinitarian, and, and see what they say. That would be an interesting conversation. I, I can remember a conversation I had when Wyatt was probably four or five, and he said, Dad, Jesus and God are one. Yep. And Jesus died on a cross while God was in heaven. Yeah. Man, that's hard to understand. Yep. Can we acknowledge that, that as a pastor, I, I, I've never found words to fully explain the mystery of the Trinity. <laughs> Maybe there's somebody, I, I, I've, I've never read anything, I've never found words. In a lot of ways, it's a mystery, I don't understand it. There's a oneness and there's a separateness. There's something unique and mysterious about the Trinity. And we receive it by faith. That Jesus, fully human, fully God, in obedience to the Father, dies on a cross. And Jesus, fully <laughs> empty, flesh and God wrapped together, because he was God, was willing to be obedient to the Father. Boy, I'm getting dizzy just talking about that. You know, that, that great hymn in Philippians, some, some interpret that. Not, not that because of who Jesus was, he emptied himself. <laughs> that, that, that the essence of what Jesus did, he did it not just because he was going to be obedient to the Father, but something within him compelled him to be obedient, fully obedient to the Father. So what's that mean? The initiative is from both. To be honest, the initiative, the, the, the love of God was present in Jesus 
And, and he did it out of obedience to the Father, that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not because he wanted to die on a cross, but because it was the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will. But Jesus is the same giving God. And Jesus is giving of himself because it's his essence. You know, there's an old story in the Old Testament. It's a story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham and Isaac, you know the story. A Abraham takes Isaac, and in most pictures you have a young boy that, that Isaac, as a young boy, that Abraham's going to be sacrificing. But, but a lot of theologians believe it's not a young boy, but it's a young man. And, and as you talk about Isaac carrying the wood for his sacrifice, and you think about how much wood it would take to, to burn a human sacrifice, uh, that'd be a lot of wood. And so you have a young man and his father who's an old man. And, and in my mind, I, I believe Isaac's probably closer to the age of Jesus in obedience to the father walking up a hill. And not being subdued by his father, but accepting the father's will, even in his life. And so the image of Isaac and Abraham is not just the faith of Abraham, but the faith of Isaac. That the son was willing to submit himself to the father because he trusted the father and he trusted his heavenly father. Jesus shows us the love of God. And the love of God is this self-giving love. And then we get to verse 17 and, and 16 and 17 really should be heard together. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Love does not judge, but it saves. A judgmental spirit runs contrary to the spirit of love. And folks, as a church, it's, can we all acknowledge that the natural tendency, the easy thing to do in life is to judge? I'll raise my hand. I'll say the natural tendency in my life is to judge before I love. Anybody else? Okay, you guys are just going to leave me out here by myself. That's okay. Don't judge me. <laughs> no, uh, well. I thought that was funny, but that's okay. We've got to work hard not to allow a judgmental spirit to keep us from fully expressing the love of God. And then the passage ends like this. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And it makes you wonder, who would reject light and love? Who in their right mind would choose the dark over the light and choose hate over love? Can we go back to the beginning of the chapter? This is about the kingdom of God. The, the, the rule and reign of God. It's, it's about submission to God. That, that, that Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to live in this, in this environment, in this posture, 
where his will is submitted to the Father's will. To live in the kingdom, the kingdom of God that is near, the kingdom of God that is near to you and near to me. That, that we can live in this kingdom where we submit to God and allow him to have full reign in our life. But on the other side of that stands our own throne. What, what, what's the saying? Me on the throne, Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the throne, me on the cross. <laughs> that, that, that there's this, this struggle that most of us face to say, God, okay, you're going to sit on the throne. And when we choose our own way over his way, when we choose to sit on the throne of our life, then we choose dark over light. And we choose hate over love. See, God is the reality. God is right. Right? We agree God is right? Did I go past time or something? You guys are getting real quiet. It's not lunchtime yet. You first service, I could preach till 11.30. God says living for others is the way of the kingdom, the way of light. When we're saying, when we choose our way, we're saying it's more important that I get my way than God get his way. Can we go back to the beginning question, what is real love? Real love is the love of the kingdom. It, real love is a way of life submitted to the way of God. God's love is self-giving, and God calls us to self-giving love. That, that when we submit ourselves to Him, His love will follow. So the invitation this morning is, is a pretty simple one. It's, it's to see... Four different things. It's an invitation to see the kingdom. To, to, to see a kingdom that's near. To have fresh and baby eyes that can see the kingdom. To, to truly see ourselves. We delude ourselves every once in a while, right? So we, we played um, Dublin Kaufman. Friday night, and Dublin Kaufman had a guard that went off. He scored 22 points in the fourth quarter, and he was hitting threes all over the floor. And I told Spencer after the game, I said, you know, you just got to have a better, you got to be more confident. And I go, can I tell you, your dad's sitting out in the stands thinking I could guard him. <laughs> he goes, well, you're crazy, Dad. But sometimes we fool ourselves, Right? We see ourselves in a wrong light. And so I think the call for many Christians is just to really see yourselves that true change comes when we can really see who we are. See others. Next week we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan and, and real love sees others. That the difference between the Samaritan and the Levite and the priest was he didn't see. They didn't see the guy that was wounded, not how they needed to, and to see opportunities. See, I, I believe this week that, that God will give you opportunities to choose his way over your way. That, that God will give us all opportunities to say, okay, God, in this circumstance, I really 
don't know that I want to do this, but I can really see, I can really feel your thumb in my back saying this is what I need to do. I need to make a call and forgive somebody. I need, I need to send a no. I, 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 need, I need to be generous here. I, I need to serve here. I, I need to... <laughs> you realize sometimes we can, we can demonstrate the love of God just by shutting up and listening, right? right? I need just to shut up and listen right now and not give any advice. God, I can, feel you, you, I can feel your move, and I'm just going to submit to you in this opportunity. I believe everyone in this room, if we truly see the kingdom, if we truly see ourselves, if we truly see people, and we truly see opportunities, I believe everyone in this room will have not just one opportunity, but many opportunities to demonstrate this real love of God and to live in the kingdom.